This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hi, I'm Flo, and this is the Great War Channel podcast, where we interview historians to learn more about the history of World War I. Now, today we are also going to look uh, a bit at the time leading up to the war, and my guest today is Jonathan Steinberg, who wrote the critically acclaimed biography Bismarck Alive, about one of the well most well-known statesmen of the 19th century. Hello, Mr. Steinberg. Hello to you. Maybe we should start with a bit of pretext. What fascinated you about Bismarck and was it that fascination that led you to write a whole biography about him? Um, I was always fascinated by Bismarck because when I became a historian back in the Stone Age, I began my lectures with a series of Germany after Bismarck, which meant that my, from the very beginning, I was interested in this remarkable figure. Uh, one thing that always interested me and never ever uh, was not so was his extraordinary cleverness and charm. He never said a boring thing. He said many false things and many outrageous things, but he was always interesting. He had a, a, a profound knowledge of human nature. Um, he was, I think, a kind of genius. Um, that in a way his genius was used in a destructive way is another story. But right to the end, he was full of interest and uh, sharpness of mind, almost to the uh, moment he died. He, I, was I was never bored with Bismarck, and still I'm not. That's probably also why you did a lot of um, you know, research in primary sources uh, for the biography. Did that research and the writing process change any of the notions you had about the figure? Maybe from, you know, back in the Stone Age, as you said it, when you started? Um, I think instinctively the answer to that is no. What I did learn um, was how much more complicated and what a light and shadow um, Bismarck's personality was. He was one of those people who everybody was fascinated by. I don't think I've ever read an account by anybody who said that Bismarck was boring. I don't think he was ever boring. He was often outrageous. Um, he was often deceitful. Um, he betrayed some of his friends. Um, for example, General von Roon, without whom Bismarck would never have become chancellor. He just dismissed in his obituary that he was a good soldier, but he was hard to get on with. I mean, this is the man to whom he owed everything. Gratitude uh, was not one of Bismarck's greatest virtues. And was this something that um, changed um, throughout Bismarck's life? Uh, I mean, did you find any notes or any um, indicators of how he did become this person, this personality, as you said it? How do, how do any of us become who we are? Um, he was outstanding from childhood. He was very tall, uh, and very tall indeed for that generation. Um, and when he was about 16 or 17, um, he went and helped Roan when Roan was doing some army surveying. And Roan was so impressed with him that he more or less remembered him from the beginning. No, I think, I think the fact is, right to the end, 
Bismarck was full of surprises. I mean, when uh, he died and the whole country came to a halt and the Kaiser uh, uh, arrived in um, Bismarck's uh, house, um, he discovered that he had been buried already. He didn't want the Kaiser to have anything to do with his, with his death. Wow. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's certainly also the kind of um, image you get from him uh, here in Germany in, in school and everything. Um, we, we got a few questions from uh, some of our supporters uh, who support our show. And one of them actually is also something I wanted to ask. I mean, the traditional narrative is that Bismarck was wise and clever in how he steered Germany to unification and that it was Kaiser Wilhelm II who foolishly ignored the sage Bismarck, which resulted in the Germany being surrounded by en enemies. So, you know, in the lead up to World War One. What do you think about this kind of narrative? Was he really that you know, sage as he, as Michael, our fan, wrote it? Um, he was immensely clever, um, but he was in a situation which he could not, in the end, win. You have to remember that Bismarck's career falls into two parts, from September 1862 um, to the victory at Sedan and the destruction of the French Empire. Nothing but success. All his gambles came off. From that point on, His power began to decline until by 1887-88 he was seriously asking the cabinet whether it would be possible to revoke the German constitution and restore the individual states because it was no longer a workable system. And the reason is, uh, the late Enoch Powell, one of the most remarkable British politicians, once said, all politicians' careers end in failure. And Bismarck's career also ended in failure. Why? Because the compromises which he made at various stages in order to deal with a specific problem don't go away. And one of those things he could never undo was his immensely clever use in 1863 of the threat of universal manhood suffrage to frighten the princes from doing any kind of uh, joint creation of a German Reich. That was a brilliant ploy. Uh, it changed people's view of him, but it left him stuck with universal suffrage. And he could not foresee that by 1890, the largest party in the Reichstag would be Social Democrats, and the second largest party would be the Catholics. The result is that Bismarck's room to maneuver steadily closed in on him. And by 1887-88, he was frustrated, He was uh, in, a, in a bind. Secondly, what was Bismarck's aim? What was he trying to do? And I think he was not, he did not go out to unify Germany in any very serious sense. What he did was to preserve the constitution of 1850 and the powers of the king. And the most important thing that everybody forgets is that Bismarck had a public of one. The only audience that mattered was the king and later the emperor, because William I had the power, could have got rid of Bismarck at any point during the 26 years when they worked together. They had constant rows, they were always in tears, they were both unstable in many ways, and at every point when Bismarck threatened to resign, the emperor gave in. As he once said, it's very difficult to be emperor under a chancellor like Bismarck. And I think, 
I think just to finish that sentence, I think what what was what was his aim? What did he try to do? And what he actually tried to do, and you can see why, was to maintain this antiquated, unsatisfactory constitution, which also had the disagreeable characteristic that it was based in some respects on universal suffrage, very modern. It was unworkable. And it was there because the result of the various quick compromises and brilliant ploys that he had used piled up. And it got to a stage where you couldn't govern that way. He had to do something about the fact that his Reichstag was full of Reichsfeinde, enemies. And that was his doing. And is this something that was also reflected in his um, foreign policies? Because um, the situation pre-World War One, of course, was a very complicated one. It was. Uh, and here I think he was m much better at keeping things going than um, than he did in, in domestic affairs. He was a consummate diplomat. Uh, it's harder to find a moment where he actually made a mistake. I mean, for example, well, I can think of one. Uh, for example, after the Austro-Prussian War, uh, the king, the court, uh, the patriotic Prussians wanted a victory parade uh, in Vienna. And Bismarck all his power and persuasiveness to tell them, no, we may need Austria. We don't want to humiliate him. They will humiliate him. There will be no parade. There will be very few reparations. We may need these people. And of course, by 1879, they did. Then comes the Franco-Prussian War. And there he made probably a fatal blunder. He allowed himself to be pushed into annexation of Alsace-Lorraine. Now, Alsace-Lorraine had been part of the German Reich in 1648, but it hadn't been part of the German Reich until 1870, when Bismarck, under great pressure from absolutely everybody, um, took it. And once he took it, it violated his deepest foreign policy, uh, foreign policy maxim, which is, in a world of five great powers, make sure that you're one of three. And he couldn't say that anymore, because he had alienated the Russians, and he had alienated, and he had allied with the Austrians, and you can't make three out of that. Uh, so this was basically like what you said about his um, internal politics, one of these um, things that came to haunt him later on, or the, or the German Empire even, in that sense. Very much so. And He did everything himself. He wrote the Constitution. Um, he wouldn't allow anybody to give him advice on these on these issues because, as he said, and this is right, he was smarter than everybody else. On the other hand, he was, after all, dependent on one factor. Had William I done the world the favor to die at the biblical old age of uh, what it, 70 years, um, that would have been um, 1879, the young emperor would have been uh, Frederick III, Bismarck would have been fired, and the history of the world would have been different. But the king did not die in 1879. He died in 1889, 1888, when he was 91 years old. So he had an enormous long reign, that was the whole base of his power. He knew it, but nobody else seemed to realize it. When the emperor died, of course, um, I mean, we have the famous uh, Three Kaiser year. 
eventually he had to deal with Kaiser Wilhelm II, who, um, I mean, now in regards to World War I, especially um, also the creation of the Weimar Republic and everything, um, is not always seen in the you know best light uh, in in Germany, but I mean, in what way was Wilhelm II's hand forced? Um, it wasn't forced. Um, once once the emperor, the old emperor, died, Bismarck didn't have any power. He really didn't have any power. He was chancellor, yes, but he was chancellor by the will of the emperor. And William II was brilliant but very unstable. And I think it tells you something about about William's relationship to power, that on the night um, his father died, he sent soldiers to um, occupy the royal palace, because what he did not want, and couldn't, he didn't foresee it, he did not want his English mother, whom he hated, um, go, getting away with all the compromising documents. But she had outwitted him. The documents had already gone uh, with the English doctor. So the documents were already in London when the Kaiser tried to get them. Now, this tells you something about what kind of a person he was. At the age of 29, his relationship with his mother is so bad that he sends troops, basically, to make her a prisoner in the royal palace. Especially the connection to... Um England or to Britain um, in his own family, but also the co um, connection between Germany and the British Empire was, you know, extremely important in leading up to World War One. What what can you, um, you know, what did you find out um, about the relation between Bismarck and Kaiser Wilhelm II? I mean, we know the famous cartoon of um, Bismarck going off board, basically. Um, but what 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 was maybe the relationship uh, apart outside of the newspaper? Yeah, I mean, I think I think one has to remember is that by the time the 29-year-old emperor became emperor, it was the third generation. Bismarck was his old grandfather, and there was no way that this unstable, uh, dramatic, flamboyant 29-year-old was going to continue to be a pupil of this old man. I mean, as I, as I now know from my own bitter experience, when you get old, things change. And the things that changed were, Bismarck could see that there was no real way he could maintain himself without some fantastic ploy. And one of the fantastic ploys was that he tried to um, align himself with the Roman Catholic Party and Windhorst, who had been his enemy. He invited Windhorst to come to uh, his um, private rooms and they had a, a very nice chat. And the Kaiser was furious. He was very anti-Catholic. He was very anti-Semitic. And he was appalled that Bismarck should receive Windhorst. How was Bismarck actually viewed by well, the non-Prussians in the German Empire. Depending which ones we're talking about, uh, the Protestant non-Prussians, like Baden, hated him. They were liberal, um, and Bismarck destroyed the Liberal Party. Um, in fact, he destroyed the Liberal Party nationally as well, and they realized it. By 1878-79, there was no longer a hope that Germany would have a liberal constitution. Bismarck didn't want it and uh, he was able to block it. Um, Bavaria was always a separate problem. Um, luckily for Bismarck, 
it didn't have a strong king. In fact, it had a king who was himself rather uh, uh, crazy. And so it was there as a power, but it wasn't a, a real power. And of course, Prussia had something like 80% of the, of the wealth and the um, industry and so on. So there was not much anybody could do. That, that's like the, you know, the Bavarians and the Badenza. Um, But I mean, by the time you know the German Empire industrialized, um, you actually also had many non-Germans and coming to Germany for you know work and everything. I mean, one thing in particular would be the the Poles, of course. Um, how, how were they treated under Bismarck, and how how were they feeling about the whole situation? They were treated very badly under Bismarck uh, for a variety of reasons. One was that he regarded them as a political threat. You have to remember this is a period in which uh, there was no Poland. Poland had been occupied in the divisions of the 18th century, so the state of Poland did not exist. There was a Russian Empire, there was an Austrian Empire, and there was the Prussian Empire, and all three of these sat on bits of Poland and were unwilling to um, break it up. So Bismarck um, always, and almost from the beginning of his term of office, Much to the annoyance of the people who were German liberals, he immediately asked Alvensleben to go and talk to the, emperor, the Russian czar to make sure that whatever happened in the Russian Empire, Bismarck would always back them. Now, the liberals who were the majority in the Prussian House of Representatives, the Prussian Landtag, were appalled by this. And Bismarck, of course, and this is a good example of his genius, he realized that if Germany kept Russia on side, nothing could happen to him, to the German Reich. The moment that there was enmity between the Russians and the, and the Prussians, in a sense, Prussia was doomed to some sort of disaster. And that was what the successors of Bismarck very foolhardily did, very, very, very rashly um, undermined that relationship. For Bismarck, it was perfectly clear that Russia was the key to peace in Europe. And he intended to m manage his foreign affairs in such a way that the Russians would never feel threatened by it. Well, that is definitely quite interesting if you, you know, look at the tensions at the outbreak of World War I, of course, which you know, leads me to a very open and big question. But uh, we get it a lot of in, in our community as well. Is, could Bismarck have prevented the outbreak of World War I? Um, That is, of course, what's called in the, in the profession a counterfactual. Let's think of what we're dealing with. Uh, on the 1st of April, 1815, Bismarck was born. Um, by the 1st of April, uh, 1895, he was in his 80s. Um, so any kind of prevention of anything that happens in the 1890s presupposes that Bismarck would have stayed in power well into his 80s. But that was probably impossible for a variety of reasons. One was that he had actually got old, and it was difficult to work with him before, but it was extremely difficult then. Uh, you had a young generation which didn't want to be ruled by an old man, and Bismarck, that's one of the very few times in which he showed himself to be um, not very far-sighted. It should have dawned on him that he, that he would be dumped. When the young Kaiser took over, uh, the Russian ambassador said, 
how will you be able to govern now? And Bismarck said, oh, he's always taken his advice from me. Well, that wasn't the case. So I don't think there was anything Bismarck could have done that stage. Um, 1895, he's in his 80s. And he has his 80th birthday and there are big celebrations, but he's already out of power. But, but I mean, you can understand, um, or as I understand it, the, the, the frequency with which we get this kind of question, um, I think also has to do with the fact that he is still so highly regarded in our modern times. I mean, you put you put it as a as a genius with like light and shadow. A lot of the things I see about him, especially in a you know very complex um, times today, is that it's uh, that you know we would need someone like him to you know solve uh, an abundance of problems today. That's a very interesting issue. Um, I did an article a couple of years ago on Bismarck and Merkel, and. Uh, um, Angela Merkel has probably been the most successful uh, German chancellor since the end of the Second World War. And she is everything that Bismarck isn't. Um, she's cautious, she's female, um, she's shrewd, she makes sure that she has proper base. And of course, her real crisis comes now because she no longer, for the first time, has a proper majority. And it's hard to know what will happen. I want to say something else, um, because I'm very conscious of this now. Um, every generation has a, a series of assumptions which this next generation and then the next generation no longer share. I am now precisely as old as Bismarck was the year he died. And I sympathize with him a lot because I know what it's like and he said something which I understand perfectly. In 1894-95, he'd been retired for five years, very bitter, very, very bitter. He wouldn't speak to the Kaiser. The Kaiser had betrayed him. I mean, that was something. One of Bismarck's vices was that he had no power of forgiveness. Anyway, um, I guess it was um, either the Navy or perhaps some of the big shipbuilders invited Bismarck to come see the new Hamburg of Freihaven. And he traveled up to Hamburg, where he was, by the way, very popular. And he was taken to the Freihaven. And he looked at this busy uh, scene of um, steam engines and um, all kinds of big uh, freighters and coming and going and smoke and lots of things. And he looked at this and he said, this is not my world. And that, I think, is the sort of thing that people of my age feel very much about what's happened now. Um, the things that are changing in our world are so grotesque and so hard to uh, imagine that you feel you don't know what's happening. It's not your world anymore. I mean, I can talk for hours about Bismarck, and I can see strengths and, and weaknesses. So it's not, I think, feebleness of mind that's the problem. I just don't know what to do with all this stuff. And if I go on teaching, which I do to some extent, it's very difficult when I have students who have no historical memory, just none. They just don't know because they're so hooked on their phones and their um, problems of the present. No, no, it's, it's you know, they, I, taught, I taught a seminar yesterday on a wonderful book, one of my favorite books, Jonathan Rabin's Old Glory, which is an account of his going in a small boat down the Mississippi. It's a wonderful book. They couldn't make head or tail of it. They just didn't understand it. 
they don't understand what the world of somebody like Jonathan Rabin, who's more or less my age, was like. And that's the problem. That's the problem of generations. And I, there is no way around it. I'm, I'm happy to be asked to talk about Bismarck because that wasn't either, but it was a world that I could understand and I could make sense of Bismarck. I could find out what kind of person he was. And of course, I was very, very lucky because what I did was in a way very simple, but nobody had done it before. I went and read the diaries and the letters of everybody who was close to him. And they talked about his characteristics, his ingratitude, etc. Um, there's a wonderful story. Um, in the 1880s, um, William Riley, who was the uh, senior Republican congressman in the United States, came to Berlin and he wanted to see Bismarck. By this stage, nobody could see Bismarck, but Bismarck liked Americans. And uh, he and the American ambassador went to, uh, did they go to Friedrich? Yes, they went to Friedrich. And there they went for a walk in the garden. The ambassador warned Congressman Riley, do not tell anybody what Bismarck says. And uh, the congressman said, oh, absolutely. And they had a two-hour talk. The cabinet was waiting. And they talked about various forms of dual currency, you know, the, the silver, silver gold currency. Bismarck had convinced himself that that would be the solution of the problems and so on. And the congressman liked that, too. And they walked up and down the garden for two hours. And Bismarck was absolutely incapable of not insulting people when he was out with them. And so-and-so was an idiot. So-and-so was said that put me in an awkward situation. In that way, there's a tiny bit of Trump in him that he never really wanted to take uh, responsibility for mistakes. And so he was very indiscreet. And um, the ambassador uh, was pretty worried, and rightly, because the congressman went back and published in one of the Philadelphia papers the entire contents of their conversation. And there was an international diplomatic crisis as a result. So that kind of thing um, Bismarck was guilty of. And um, he was very ungrateful. I mean, the people who put him in power, he never thanked them. Hmm. That's a very interesting parallel. Actually, I haven't really thought about that, but a uh, very good final thought, I think, for our interview. I thank you for uh, taking the time, Mr. Steinberg. It was a great pleasure talking to you. If you out there in internet land uh, want to read Bismarck Alive, there is a link in the description of this episode when it comes out. If you like this podcast, then uh, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, don't forget to subscribe. Hear you next time and uh, goodbye, Mr. Steinberg. Can I say something to you? First of all, thank you for giving me the pleasure of talking to you. I don't know how to do podcasts. I don't know how to do any of this stuff. And that's, I think, one of the deepest um, things that I have with Bismarck. I know what he was like. Uh, I know what the world was in which he lived. I could reconstruct it. And that's why I suppose the book was a success. Anyway, thank you for allowing me to talk about this ancient history. I had a great time. Mm -hmm.